I am Kavluitz Media at Kavluitz Media on Twitter and via email at kaplowitzmedia at mail.com. K-A-P-L-O-W-I-T-Z. And this is Opening the Books, episode number four. Opening the Books, since you asked, is the story of Phil Zangi as told to myself by himself as you listen in episodically on a pop-up schedule because I'm literally writing the book on Phil. Look for it to be available for your purchase within this year of our Lord 2020. So sit back, enjoy the process here, gentle persons, a look in from your outside and Speaking of a look in from your outside and the process at hand, I've been saying all along, the previous three, anyway, episodes of this, that everything in this podcast presentation will be in the book. There's a lot. And Phil, you could help me out here. But not not everything in this podcast will end up in the book. Right, so, and, and, and vice versa and all that. This, yeah. this podcast is not going to be the audio version of the forthcoming book. There's going to be stuff here that's not there, there being the book. There's going to be stuff there, there being a book that's not here, here being the podcast. So mm-hmm. there's just a lot of stuff. It's a colorful life you've led. Phil. Yeah. So thank you. There's a lot. There's a oh good. You took it as a compliment. I was hoping. Yeah, it's painting, painting with painting with your fingers, as they say back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> so what what we have in store today on this podcast episode is uh, just a little guideline, a little structure to this. What to expect? We're going to go back uh, two generations to Phil's grandparents, maternal and paternal. We're going to go forward and tell a little bit of stories about Lil Phil with his grandparents or at least his memories of those grandparents, his grandparents. Then we're going to go into the territory of Phil, your dad, your father, which is going to be a a nice-sized portion of the book. I'll go as far as saying that because... Well, because I was going to explain even further, but because nothing, let's let's just do it. They'll see. I have a smart listenership. I like to absolutely. Think. They'll get them. They'll understand the uh, the method behind the madness. How um how this it, it all links together in the end, and right. um, there is going to be a theme that you will see once you get the book. And we're working in a, a different type of structure to uh, keep um the listeners and the readers engaged, but also it's going to provide you with some uh, just different insights. Let's just say that on how uh, uh, I became who I am and how people around me became who they are and so on and so on. So Cap, just um, you just, you lead me in and tell me what you want, how you want to begin. Well, I already led you in what the hell you want from me. You need a red carpet. Okay. So you want me to just go. So, um, (laughs) Hey, 
hope everybody's okay and safe because we are now writing a book, doing a podcast in one of the strangest times in history. Everybody out there knows that's listening in the next 24 to 48 hours or the next whenever. Um, we are in the middle of a pandemic, and um, it's a very strange time. So, but it's worked out well for myself and Cap because we have a lot of time on our hands, and so we've been able to work diligently on getting this go. book to come there to fruition very quickly. And, and, <laughs> and we have and, nothing better to do. And since your time, and since you're actually since you're smart enough, I should have. But thanks for picking up my slack to timestamp this as during the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Please forgive it's me. Always- Please forgive yeah, me no, if the audio quality your allergies, isn't perfect. Your allergies are kicking in. It's okay. And my allergies are kicking in. It's yeah. so, it's so I'm, I'm loopy and um, feel like talk a lot. And yeah. the audio quality might not be as good as it could be because of issues out of our control. So with all mm-hmm. those disclaimers in place, I hope you're still on board, everybody. So... Yeah. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and do this. I gave the skeleton. Tell me a little bit about your grandparents. We'll start with my mom's uh, side, okay? My grandmother, my grandfather. My grandmother was born in Yonkers, New York. She was first-generation Hungarian. Her family had come from uh, a little town outside of Budapest in Hungary. Um, my grandmother was a homemaker, um, seamstress, and my grandfather was the was a a worker, but he was an inventor. He worked for toy companies at the turn of the century. My grandmother was born in 1913. So was my grandfather on my mom's side. They, um, on her side, they moved over um, turn of the century. Um, he got he worked with FAO Schwartz. He worked with Parker Brothers. Huh. He was he actually invented the uh, the whirl wheel. You know the little. The little magnetic wheel that's on like a loop that you go, it goes up and comes back and goes up and goes back. It's like yeah. it's a little it's an old school toy. They're still around. Um, I don't think he got anything for it because he worked for the company. But he was my grand. My mother has told me and my grandmother had told me they were just really cool, just down to earth people living in Yonkers. Um, huh. So my grandmother went to school. She basically became a secretary. Then um, and she just grew up in Yonkers. My grandfather. He was first-generation Italian. They, he was, I found out that basically his, um, his mother and father were both Italians. They both came over. Um, they met. They, uh, he just, was a, just, just did a bunch of work and a bunch of stuff, just a handyman kind of thing. My grandmother was a homemaker. Okay. Um, they lived in Cooperstown, New York. Okay. And... Um, yeah, nothing really, nothing really special. My uh, my grandfather, though, something tragic happened. My grandmother died tragically when they were young, and there were seven kids, so they all had to get split up. So my grandfather, he's the only one who stayed with my my great granddad. But he was, um, as I say, a handyman, but he was an acute alcoholic, and he was a very violent man, and um, he uh, beat my grandfather daily, and and just a and my grandmother died under weird circumstances. Let's say that so. Uh, back then, even the social services took the kids and split them all up. But my grandpa, for some reason, stayed with him. And huh. that makes a lot of sense to me because Cap and I have been talking about this. And I've been talking to my family. And um, he was really super mean to me my whole life. He hated my father. Um, when uh, We'll get to that, how my mom and dad got together. But 
So my grandfather basically he worked he lived in Cooperstown. He was just trying to make it happen. Um, he got he started to work at a golf course as a caddy, and by the age like sixteen or seventeen, was a scratch golfer. The war came around. He got drafted. Um, he went to Italy, and he was in Africa, and he he stormed the beaches at Anzio. And but right before he left, he was in Asbury Park, New Jersey, getting ready to go, and he met my grandmother at some dance that her friends from the the steno pool or the the typing mm. pool took her to, you know, back in the old school days, and. Right. He saw her and liked her, and then they, they wrote during the whole time he was overseas, and when he came back, they got married and had kids, then moved into Westchester, and then I didn't know this. He ended up working at Indian Point, that nuclear power plant, but my sister said that he, my aunt too also said that, um, and my mom, that he had worked many other jobs. He got back from the military, and he worked in a mechanic shop, and he worked in a bunch of different stuff. You know, just that era, you know what I mean? Right. Coming back from the war. Um, just trying to American dream, you know, that kind of thing. So just trying to fit in. So yeah, my, yeah, my, yeah, my grand, then they had two kids, my mother and my aunt, and they lived in Peekskill, New York. And, um, that's pretty much it with them. Um, with the, for their, their lives. I mean, it, well, they weren't super eventful, but it was a true American story. I mean, they fell in love, they had children, uh, you know, war babies, the whole thing. Right. And, um, you know, my in my grandma living in Yonkers, and then they then him living in Cooperstown, and then they get together, and it's just it's a good story. There, you know, <laughs> but later in life, I never really. I, I mean, there'll be more in the book, but the relationship with my grandfather was very, very, uh, very tension ridden, and it was he was very mean to me, and I'd only see him in the summers. But then on the other hand, my grandmother was a saint. She um, was Hungarian, so she cooked a lot, and she was just an amazing cook. She used to, uh, the things that we all still remember is chicken pepperdikash, which is a famous dish from Hungary. It's 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 uh, sour cream, um, butter, paprika, and onions, and then they you cook the chicken in it, and it boils down, and you put it over egg noodles. It's insane comfort food. It's like super good, really good. My granddad, I don't remember doing really much with him. I mean, he was not a cool granddad. He wasn't taking your fish in, and he wasn't doing stuff. But when we'd go and stand up in New York with my dad's side, we'd always usually fly into JFK. They'd pick us up, and that they, they, they would take us around and my, with my sister. And they did – when I was at the house was not fun, but they would – my grandmother and him together, we'd go to Howell Caverns, go to the Boxing Hall of Fame, and, and uh, oh, I forget yeah. the name of the town. Yeah. We'd go oh, all God. over the town. I can't remember the, the name of that. I can't remember the name of that it's town. Not, That's going to kill me. It's not Gloversville, New York. It's um. No, it's. I want to say with a P. Uh, let, let, let's. Uh, I don't not, let's digress, yeah. I digress. But, and then they we stay with them, and then they drive us up to Buffalo, Rochester, Batavia, where my family was, and drop us off. Um, so, that was pretty much it. My grandmother died young. My grandfather remarried. We found out later that he, it was a family friend, that there was a couple that hung out. Her husband had died, and then my grandma died, so they had supposedly gotten together. And it, it's just, it would be in the book, whatever. I don't want to get into it right now. Um, let's get into my dad's family, all right? Okay. So, oh, is that oh, enough oh, to think oh, about? Oh, oh. Phil, Phil, Conestoga. Yeah. Is that where the, the boxing Canistoga. hall of fame is? Conestoga, New York, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's exactly. Popped in my head. And it is, New York's a great place. We stopped at all kinds of cool different places. How Caverns is really cool. 
It was the story is I'll tell it quick that this farmer had a big farm and the cows would always lay by in the summertime by this these these rocks. And he went over there and he just started clearing it out and he felt this super cool air coming out of the between the rocks and he noticed a crack. So he moved the rocks and then he noticed it was a it was a tunnel. You know? It was like a huh. cavern. He, he he just spelunked down into it or belayed down into whatever the term is and this huge caverns, man. It's insane. Really? They're beautiful. Yeah, how huh. caverns. But yeah. So then let's my let's go to my dad's side. So my grandfather Zangi, first generation American, born in um, Hanover Street area in Boston, North End, um, Sicilian, came o- was born there. His family came over, and they were in uh, the pasta business, and they had barber shops. And they were in the gambling business. I mean, basically, I think there was a lot of bootlegging going on during that era because he was once he was born in 1913, also. And then my aunt, my grandmother, I think, was born in 15. Yeah, 13 and 15, right? Mm-hmm. So my grandfather's living in Boston, doing real well, whatever. So for some reason, to this day, I don't know. He moved up to upstate New York, and started a business. He got there was a like a like in his 18, 19. He was with some of his family. He started a business with, a, I don't think, it was, I think it's a distant cousin, the Michellis. They started a Zangi Michelli Pasta and Furniture Company. Like, just like the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't get more Italian than that. And so he was up there. Then subsequently going back, I'll get more into stores with him. My family in Boston, um, there's, the only place you'll find Zangis really is in Boston, and there's still a bunch there. My uncle was a great great uncle would be his name was john LaRocca, mickey the wise guy they called him he was accredited with getting all the permits and putting together put suffix downs in always gamblers oh, always wow. bootleggers they were just known people you look up the name Zanke back in the turn of the century there's all kinds of crazy stuff that went on they huh. were just running areas and doing stuff you know but they but but then there was the other side that was like kind of aristocratic that got into construction and got into all the other you know different areas at the time doing things um my grandfather was the best i'll get more than that i'm just getting this little quick backstory a little origin story then my grandmother she was born in salerno cortuzzi valva this little tiny town like like about an hour and a half more south than naples right up Hmm. south south um south would it be south east in the mountains right um, okay. some reason, somehow they had my great grandmother, Mari Michela, Mary Michael, basically her name is, she had family that lived in upstate New York. So up in Buffalo, in this place called Batavia, this little tiny town, there was a bunch of industry going on huge in that area of like tool and dye and the war stuff's come in and just stuff, just like big manufacturing. So for some reason they decide to go there. They get on a boat, my grandma and her, my great grandmother, um, go across, come through Ellis Island, end up there. And they were so poor that my grandmother breastfed till she was six. And my great-grandmother would always tell a story that for her, bread is life, Italians everywhere, but for her it was something. And she remembers she would go to church every single day, no BS, every day she would go to church because there was, she was so hungry and there was so poor she had to steal a loaf of bread one time. It, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the voyage, right? And she was so distraught about that. And just fast forward 40, 50 years, we're living in L.A. We'll get to this. I know it's off, 
off topic, but it's not. We're living in L.A., and I had my we had we had this uh, American Staffordshire Terrier, right, named Bentley, right, this dog. And my dad mm-hmm. was like a weirdo, and he'd buy all kinds of just too much of anything, like so much fruit. We'll get into why that is, but all this stuff and. He had all this bread, and it was like two or three days old, these big loaves of Italian bread. And he's like, man, this stuff's just going bad. I'm not going to mess with this because, okay. So he throws this loaf of bread to my dog. So this dog, wow. he's got this huge loaf of Italian bread in his mouth, and he's running around the backyard. And my great-grandma's there. She freaks out. The dog! The dog stole the bread. We got to get him. Let's the sin. Get the dog. And like, we're like, what are you talking about? We see him. And this dog is just sprinting around this backyard. And she's out there. Now, this is like any normal person. They're so scared of this dog. It's like a big terrier. American stuff. So I tell like a giant pit bull, like whatever. Right, right. She's not scared. She opens the door full sprint, tries to get the bread out of the dog's mouth. I'm like, yeah, who's going to eat the bread after the dog had it? I don't know. Yeah, it was just funny. funny. So my grandmother yeah. had that real, forget depression era. You're talking after the war, you know, occupation, just right. World War One, then coming World War Two, you know, so she had been through it all. She died at ninety nine, right? So wow. um Yeah, she was great, man. She she would she gets to the States, they live with my uncle Samilio, and she ends up um my great grandma is just raising kids. So my grandpa Antonio comes over, they end up having five kids. He ends up just he's a scumbag. He uh just a real scumbag. He uh, had just was a real philanthropist and uh, not you know a philanderer, not a philanthropist, philanderer. philanderer. <laughs> Two different things. Sorry, audience. Right. <laughs> I made him really deny. Two different things. Come back and one way. Yeah. Right. And um, he goes back to Italy. Supposedly the salsa business never comes back. We lose all the family land. He marries another woman, whatever. But during that time, my grandmother, she was a, seriously. If you want to know what the, the act of positive thinking is, and never giving up, and just going forward in life, and not ever looking back on like, you know, oh, oh, woe is me, oh, this and that. This woman started doing crochet work, right? They had bought a house, right, and she rented the apartments upstairs. She would do these special, you know, country potatoes for people's weddings because it was a real Italian, it's a real southern Italian type of, you know, thing. It's like the boiled potatoes almost till they were like exactly done, put them in chill water, they're sliced thin. Then she takes, she puts olive oil in a pan with crushed red pepper, fresh crushed red pepper, she throws them in there. They, like, fry for, like, a second. They don't, they're not fried, right? She called them fried potatoes, but they're not really crispy fried, right? right. But they kind of get, like, a, a little layer. Then she takes those out in a bowl, salt, pepper, olive oil on it, right? Really mm-hmm. basic, right? Then she would take a whole white onion, cut it into four pieces, and peel each piece off, and you take that with fresh bread, the piece of the onion, and you scoop up the potatoes and you eat it. Man, talk about the ultimate peasant food. You think, wow, that sounds like basic no, man, it was insane. People still to this day, none of my aunts, none of them can replicate that recipe for some reason. Huh. It sounds so simple, right? No, whatever. And my grandma oh, would bake man. bread every day. I'll try. I, I, bake, I bake bread every day since the apocalypse. So, yeah, I know doing, what that right? means, though. What's that? You're still baking bread? Oh, yeah, I bake, bre- I break a lo- I bake a loaf of bread every day. My kid is completely spoiled. He expect he, he thinks that like I, I I not to make this about me I'm I'm an old chef I worked as a chef so right. my kid my kid's experience is going to be really different than other kids' experience like I have I have a garden with vegetables and whatnot a vegetable garden you might call it and we eat from there and I cook from scratch and I bake a loaf of bread every yeah. morning for him the kid the kid's living right. his best life. 
this apocalypse is That's really awesome. working out for him. You know, he, no, I remember he, that with my grandma. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's working out. He's having, he's living the, he's living like a boot, he's living like a pop up chef table life. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's a man of leisure, no school. You know, and, and anyway, yeah, anyway, living a life for Riley. Yeah, um, yeah. So my grandmother, she would then she also got into crocheting. She'd make baby booties, baby bonnets, all this stuff for christenings, all this stuff for first communion. Um. All this different stuff, and she was just great. She was amazing, you know. Yeah. Um, hustled. Good hustled. woman. So she raised all those kids, my aunts and my uncles, and whatever. And then um, my grandmother, and my grandfather met through some mutual friends. They get married. His family kind of, um, kind of didn't disown him, but didn't really like that he married. You know, supposedly what they looked at as lower because they weren't from okay. Sicily and, and stuff like that. Gotcha. So then they had, then they had five kids and um my father my uncle my three aunts right so basically they um i'm sorry my family just come up here i just wanted it was just got like crazy noise just distracted me (laughs) well no so they're living in batavia new york my grandfather he was just an amazing guy we find out all years later that he didn't get a job till he was 40 right so Basically, he had a brand new Lincoln every year, and they always bought a house. They had a bunch of property. My grandmother forced him at 40 to get a job, right? Um, he was a saint of a man. I think was, just for appearances, yeah. or what was the point of I that? I think so. Because, because I think it was for appearances because, like, years later when he finally passed away, we found out he, he was owned or was in about 13 different pool halls he owned. It was part of. And he also was one of the first guys to get vending machines and bathrooms for condoms and for stuff like that. <laughs> and all these different things and all these, and then when he died, they found a coin collection with like first minted quarters and all this other really cool stuff, you know? Okay. And yeah. From all the machine, this, and also, people are just throwing yeah, in whatever. Mm-hmm. Throwing whatever, you know, gold, double eagles and crazy stuff. And also he found a book of, uh, of um, a bunch of charity stuff. He gave so much stuff away over the years. And my grandma was weird because she came from super poor. My grandmother's like, my grandfather was the best thing in the world. You'll, I'll get really into him in the book. He was really influential in my life. Because right. I don't want to get into the long conversation about it, like, you know, in this podcast. We'll go for hours. And my, but my grandmother was the opposite. He was super giving. He was super loving. Everyone loved him. A thousand something people came to his funeral. My grandma, on the other hand, would buy day old bread, would buy the end cuts or cold cuts, would, um, just like buy fruit and it was only for the fruit and the nuts were only for visitors, um, stuff like that. She would never, she said there was too many grandkids to give anybody Christmas presents or birthday cards or anything. I, she I, was just I love, super that. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause I asked her one time, I'm like, That's... grandma, you know, am I bad? Is there a reason why you don't ever send me and my sister a Christmas card or a birthday card? She's like, no, I don't give it to any of them. There's too many of you. It's just too much. A dollar a person. I mean, there's like maybe 12 of us. That's 12 bucks. I mean, it's nothing. A card, you know? You can buy them in bulk. Happy birthday. And was, I don't know. She was just I, came I, from I so poor. Not to come down against you, Phil, but I think you're forgetting about postage costs, too. I mean, it, it could get pricey. I see. I think, she, I, I think she's my spirit animal is what I think. She sounds cheap enough to be that. Everyone else lived around her. We were the only ones who lived out. It don't matter. But that's it. Yeah, yeah. God bless her. She's been somewhere. And, um, <laughs> You're not going to turn me against yeah. her, Phil. But, yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, I get you. And then um, 
Yeah, my grandfather, I just remember my youth with him. He, uh, he had a stroke, and then he came and lived with us for a while. My mom took care of him because she was a nurse, and he was really great to me. And we'd take me for ice cream, and he was super cool with me, and he'd tell me stories about back in the day and stuff like that. And he was real close to me. He loved me. And he had a you know, cane, and, and when he, you know, he would just I'd help him walk around. He was just a good man. And my grandmother, it wasn't, I'm not saying that she was mean or anything, but she was like this distant. And it was just a strange, there was no real maternal or grandmother love, like, you know, puts you to bed and make sure. I stayed at her house. I'd just go to sleep. You know, I mean, it was like you come in when the lights came out on the street and you go to bed. I mean, they have some food laying there. But, we, but the thing was, on that same street, it was, number, it was called Wood Street, right? My mm-hmm. aunt, my grandma, and my great-grandma lived on the same street, right? So oh, wow. you just go, yeah, bouncing from each house. I go to my great-grandma's and get some food, then hang out. And then go over to my aunt's house with my cousins live there, which was like my age. My cousin Paul, they don't pizzerias and stuff. Now, um, okay. I'd leave, oh, okay, okay. hang with them. We'd, we'd make a ruckus. They'd throw us out of the house. They'd go get on your bikes, go to the park. Then we'd go to my grandma's for a little while, see what's going on over there. And then we just would, man, that was some of the best times of my life, man. It was like, you know, stand by me. I mean, we all had bikes. We'd go to the, you know, public parks. They had public pools. You know, they huh. had like the parks and recs. In the summertime there, there's a place called Pringle Park that was right on the end of the street. We'd go there, and they had like a little, um, like a kiosk or, you know, like a, like a kiosk or, you know, like a little clubhouse where they'd do arts and crafts and, and stuff like that, and you'd paint and you'd do the stuff and they play baseball and play football. But my cousins, they were classic, dude. They were crazy. I remember my – this is one of the funny stories. I'll never forget this. My one cousin – we're doing paper mache, and he's really mad at one of my aunts, right? So you're like making gifts. He, I'm not that this is not made up. He takes a dump, right, and he covers it in paper mache, right, and it kind of like right. So he gives it to my aunt, and for some oh. reason he purposely like breaks it, and it stinks. It was just like insane. My cousins were nuts, dude. I don't know where they came up with this. They were deviants. They were real deviant. They got really strange later. So, my one so cousin what, he got what, what year are we in right about now? This is the early 80s. Okay. Early 80s. Gotcha. Late 70s, early 80s, you know. Um, my grandma and grandpa, I mean, you know, those from 1913, you're talking, yeah. It's around the, like, er, like late 70s, early 80s is when my father, we would like, and that was the crazy thing is that, I mean, I've been flying in a plane by myself or just, just with my sister since I was like, like nine you know hmm. what I mean? Or 10. I mean, my old man and my mom were like, go ahead, go visit. Just beat it. You know, put us on the plane. <laughs> Give us a couple hundred bucks for the whole summer, and we just go hang out. You don't need no money. I mean, you know, we were kind of the, 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 supposedly the richer family or whatever. But, I mean, I'm staying at my aunt's house, and my, my, my dad's youngest sister, my, her, it's a, it's, a, it's a weird thing. My, my sister's born on November 9th, and I'm born on June 7th. My uncle... My uncle by marriage is born on June 7th, and my dad's youngest sister is born on November 9th. So it oh. was like, it's, yeah. So I'd stay with them a lot, and, he ta- and Uncle Jeff, he taught me how to fish and hunt. And he's the one who got me really into guns and hunting and the respect for, like, the wilderness and all this other stuff. And he was, he's half Blackfoot Indian and half Irish. He's a really oh. great guy. Just a super cool. great guy. All right. Um, yeah. So, so, what, so, so let's bleed over into your dad a little bit. What's your dad doing okay. around that time? So, okay. So, 
one super, one real first, one, my dad's first generation on that side there, and then he's second generation on my granddad's side. So you've got a super immigrant old lady from Italy. My grandfather grew up in a city in Boston and moved upstate New York, right? So that's mm-hmm. my dad's rearing. My dad's in, now he starts off super athlete, right? Super. Where it's like one game away from the, uh, the, the, the Little League World Series. He was All-American in ba- All-State or whatever in basketball, All-American in football, but all these different scholarships and stuff like that. That's how he was raised. My, they said he was the most loving, likable guy in the world. Not saying that I am. I try to be the best man I can be. They always say, how you are, Phil, is how your dad was, right? So we've got into it that he gets my dad, my grandfather figures out that he, he sprouts when he's 16 because at 50 he got Oscar Slotus disease. That means your shin grows faster than the top of your leg, your femur. So it's super painful. So he was in cast all that summer. In that one summer, he grew three inches, right? It Jeez. was insane. Yeah, so it's a known thing. And so he had the cast, he gets him off. He starts, now he starts excelling sports. He's super loved. They said he cleaned the house all the time. He was really proud of his home and his family, this and that. So basically we got into that. My grandfather figures out that he's going to be drafted to go to Vietnam. He makes him go right. into the Air Force, right? Right. So he goes into the Air Force. He gets stationed. He's in, he's in, uh, he's in the, he went up to Montana, Great Falls, Montana, to uh, the Bob Marshall Wilderness, did disaster control training, right? Then he went, it was in Tonsonute. Then he ended up in Okinawa, right? So now he's TDY in Okinawa, and he's going back and forth into Vietnam because he became a 498 tactical missile group, and he became a disaster control specialist. So basically they'd send him in temporary duty orders. They'd send him into Vietnam, who knows where, to pull out ordinance that wasn't exploded or go take stuff back. But basically he's just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Now he's living in Okinawa, and that's when the worm turned. My father saw money, saw he, could, he was super ninja smart, genius guy, like, like Lex Luthor kind of person. So he had some influences over there. That's the only thing we can come up with how he became so evil and he became so bad is that over there, he told stories later on in my life that basically he's loaning money, right, and that he's wearing a, a, a steel collar so somebody couldn't slit his throat. He had this huge uh, leather like Gestapo jacket, like a leather long trench coat, right, that he still had years later. And then he had a rig, he had a picture of him open up, and he had like two double-barrel shotguns hanging. He's in the military. What is he doing? So he's over there in Okinawa, right, on Gate 2 Street. And at that time, there was more bars per capita there than anywhere in the world, loaning money. And then he tells the crazy stories about he goes with one of his buddies. And I've heard this not more than once, but I truly believe my dad. And I know people that, that later on in life that survived, and came back and told the same story about this thing. A friend of his goes into a cat house, and the lady had a, a diaphragm of razor blades, and you can just imagine what happened from there, Jeez, you know? Yeah. And yeah. So he got all fucked up over there. Excuse my language. Bad. So right. um, by the time he returns back, my, he was saving up money to get a Jaguar E-Type. My grandfather says, nah, you know, I'm going to get this, this, uh, this Buick, uh, this Buick Riviera boat tail, and, you know, and, you know, you don't need to send all that money and, and whatever. So he kind of was animosity. But he came back and they said he was different. He's like, I'm not staying in this shithole. I'm going somewhere else. I'm getting out of here, right? And he goes to Buffalo and he starts to go to UB, University of Buffalo, to play ball and to do some stuff. And he was drafted to Syracuse to play ball. He did that for, like, a, a little while. Then he goes back to UB for some reason. That's still cloudy, but he did do it. I remember there was all the pictures of him and everything. So okay. he's at UB. 
he ends up meeting my mother at this place called the Beef and Ale. That's not there anymore. It was an old famous like bar. And uh, she was going to Duville College for nursing. So they fall in love. Um, they get, she gets pregnant. And that was how it got all funky with my granddad. So now this is just, I'm going to get more into it in the book, how there was a lot of, how it was started off really bad between my mom and dad. And I can understand how it ended badly, but right. the pregnancy thing with my grandfather and my grandmother, and then my mother's telling them and, and long story short, I'll get it. That's, that's, I don't want to get into that right now. That's it, but I'll get into that in the book. And, and there's a reason it's, it's, it's an intense story and it's a long story, but I'm not going right. to do that right now. So we'll, blah, blah, blah. We'll, work, we'll, work it up. we'll work it up together, not on the air, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Then, of not course, I, show, I mean, we've gone over a little bit. The guy, Bill Furman, that was in insurance, all the checks. He started to make, uh, my father was helping this guy out with my mom. Um, my dad one time, this is one of the stories that I, I, I totally had forgot, but my, my sister reminded me of. I remember mm-hmm. my, my father goes away for like two weeks, right? And he was at this time jacked and in shape, and I could see him in my face. Right. He goes to Acapulco for like two weeks with his friend. Right. That subsequently, when they come back about a year later, he dies in a terrible car crash. And it was a whole other thing. And um, but he comes back and he looks fat. Right. Like really fat. And we're looking at him like, what's this? Now, I'll never, ever forget this. He comes up, opens up his chest, opens up his, his jacket. He has like a vest on. He takes out a pocket knife and he like cuts the vest and just money pours out like crazy, <laughs> like a crazy amount of money. So he was always, I think he, that was from gambling. And so that's basically when we saw, then all the gambling started, then all him doing all the bookmaking started. And then we start to move all over. And I confirmed it. My mother reminded me, yep, we moved 19 times, son. And you went to 22 schools. Because every time we moved, you went to a school. And there was a couple of times it went to two, two, two different schools at the same, in the same year. Wow. Right. All right. Here we I go. On Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, yeah. So, so basically, the, some of the, I'll hit on some of the key stories of my dad. Let's, you want to do that? Give me, around give, give me two stories for now, and then we'll talk more and put the rest in the book. How's that sound? One of the better stories I can think of is we moved to Italy years later. We move out of there. We leave L.A. for some reasons that we'll get into. We're in Italy. He somehow meets David Carradine in Harry's Bar in Via Veneto, right? Becomes friends with him. David Carradine becomes like a family friend. Next thing you know, he's getting married to a lady named Gail Ritt. And, um, no, Gail, I'll think of her last name in a minute. Whatever, named Gail. I'm in the wedding. It's the Hostel de Medici, a famous, famous hotel on top of the Spanish Steps. Um, We become friends with him. He knows these guys from Saudi, this prince that lives on the same block as us. They start talking to these guys in Egypt, right? So this guy from Egypt comes, and his name was uh, Kamal Alefi, right? He was like the Berlusconi of, of, uh, of, of Egypt, right, of Cairo. So right. somehow my dad starts putting this together. He flies with Carradine to the Middle East, right? He syndicates Kung Fu again. Now, it's been dead, right? He syndicates huh. it in all the Middle East to this guy Kamal, right? And he hooks it up where it turns out to be Kung Fu is like they had to put it on at the correct times because people would miss their prayer. So he becomes over famous again, David Carradine, over in Egypt. And during that same time period, somehow my father knew the people, Conrad and Baron Hilton, the Hilton men that started the Hiltons, and they want to open up this Ramses Hilton, right? 
there's the Cairo Hilton and the Ramses Hilton. The Ramses Hilton was the, was the, the, the royal palace of King Farouk, the last pharaoh. So they get that property, they're building a tower behind it, and they can put a casino in there. Because that's North Africa, it's way more lenient Muslim, not now, with the Muslim Brotherhood and everything, right, but then, right. it was, so my dad's going back and forth, and he's organizing the gaming of it, he's organizing the, all the, how the pit bosses are putting, all that stuff that yeah, comes okay. into putting a casino. So as I'm on break, I would fly over there and stay with my dad, and I'd be sitting there with him. Now, I'm rolling around with David Carradine, who's a superstar over there right now, this guy named Kamala Lefty, who is like the back of, he's like Mel Griffin at the time, you know, Merv Griffin at the time over yeah. there. And then there's another guy named General Moshir Abu Ghazala, right? This is the guy that sat next to Sadat and leaned to the right when he got killed, okay? <laughs> Straight up. So this guy's taking us over in helicopters to show us tanks that were blown up during the October War, also flying us over the Suez Canal, because my dad, now, he's in some weird ninja mode where he's hooking up with these guys in the Sudan, right, that have, like, a free zone, and they also have an alligator farm, but they want, like, seafood. So my dad's talking to this cat from the Ministry of Agriculture in Egypt that says in the Suez Canal, there's so many shrimp because of the, on the barnacles on the boats, the shrimp, stay in the canal and they because it's warm water they grow like crazy so they got to get these shrimps out of there because all these boats are coming through and he's doing all these crazy ass deals while doing the the hotel with the hilton boys and that goes through and he gets done with that and that goes great then the syndication it all goes great and so now we're living in now we're living in rome and i'm going to school in notre dame on via Aurelia when everybody says the oldest you know, all roads lead to rome that was the road right via Aurelia. so i'm going to school there and then I hook up and become friends with all these diplomat kids. And then the kid who turns out to be my best friend, his name's Maj Hamad. He still lives in Rome. His father was the third man under Arafat. And you're talking in the 80s now. And that's when PLO was full-blown insanity, right? Right. I mean, they're going crazy, right? So I'd go hang out at his house, and we'd just go out downtown. And they're all diplomats. So you can do pretty much whatever you want. No one can say anything to you. <laughs> so he had a bulletproof, like, Alfa uh, Romeos and all this. They drive us around. All I remember is going to his house. They had like a, a APC, like a, a like an armored, you know, personnel carrier in front of his house with Cabinetti and like people in the back because it was just a crazy time. And I remember going in there and they check us and we go in and whatever thing was cool. And I remember the mother, the best Arabic food I've ever eaten in my life. It was like lots of lots and lots of vegetables and there was a big, huge silver-like dish. On like in like a in like the foyer, right? Where like there was like an end table there, right? Hmm. And she, you were not allowed to have guns on you when you ate at the table, not at her table, right? Man, yeah. you'd see the amount of guns loaded up on this thing, and I'd go in to eat, and I'm like, and it didn't bother me because you know my dad's kind of he's kind of gangster as it could be, and are you always around guns and stuff? So the and his father was like a super diplomat guy. Now he was the he was the diplomatic wing, he was the political wing of it. He loved me. And we, and believe it or not, they still talk to him to this day, the guy, and his sister. And he's, huh. he, he has a wine bar and, like, a jazz bar in Rome, the kid. <laughs> he never got into his jazz business. Nice. Yeah. So we're living, that's one of the better ones. My dad doing that with David Carradine. And then I remember living when I was there. That was, like, the first year we're living there. So my dad said, either you can, you know, homeschool and box, because I was really into boxing, because we left L.A. and I was really into boxing, or you could go to school. I said, of course, I'm just going to homeschool, whatever, I'm doing nothing, and then go boxing every day. 
Right. That wasn't really what it was. It was like a really hardcore training. My dad had a Lincoln Town Car. He had a, bla- a black and silver. He had a black 450 SEL AMG, you know, car. And I had to clean those every morning, do my stuff, and then get on a bus and go all the way downtown and train and come back. So once we started knowing David, he was living at the DeVille Hotel on the top of uh, Spanish Steps. So I just would stay with David because my gym was close to that. So I was hanging out with David Carradine for a whole year. Like, hmm. Came really close friends with him. And he was just awesome, dude. The guy was just like, that's Kung Fu, that's Grasshopper. I mean, it was one of those things in life that that Guinea Forest Gump thing kicks in, and we went all over the place, you know? And I remember one time, it's like a Friday, and my mom and dad, we, I had gone back home. They're like, I'm just going to stay here, whatever. It was just cool. It was kosher because my dad was coming back and forth. And so I said, I'm going to stay the weekend. I'm not going to come home. And I was like, fine. So David goes, okay, let's just go out and eat you and I. So we're out and eating. And he liked to drink a lot. He got really shit face drunk all the time. So mm-hmm. we're walking one time, and this taxi gets close to him, and he just like full side kicks the taxi, like puts a huge dent in the side. So this Italian taxi driver stops, gets out, starts yelling at him, and he sees him, right? And he just sees him well enough in the light. He looks at him and he goes, Fire Butana, Kung Fu, like that. Like, it was crazy. And he gets in the car and just takes off. I look at David and he goes, that's right. That's right. And it was just like insanity. I'm a kid. I'm like maybe 12, 13, you know what I mean? Awesome. And it was, just, it was just a crazy time. That's one of the, that's one of the cool ones. And we'll, we'll, more, we'll get deeper into that whole the whole structure and the whole dynamic of that in the book, because we right. can write it down more. And I explained the time frames and how it worked out, and who he was dealing with, and the Saudis, and, and then he went to Yemen, and all this other crazy shit went on. Okay. And then um, that's, one, that's one of the great ones. And then, God, there's so many of them, man. Um, let me think of another good one. I mean, working with Sly for all those years, too, was pretty amazing. I told you the boxy story. I think we talked about that last time when I went to Sly's house. Yeah, yeah, and, we did uh, touch on that. Yeah. Um, let me see who else. The Jean-Claude Van Damme, did we go over that? No, we did not. Let's end on that. Go for it. Okay, so fast forward. We're, this is before we moved to Italy. This is pre-Italy. We're living in L.A. My dad's the number one bookmaker, number two, arguably in the whole, if not the state, definitely Los Angeles County. And um, he's got a friend named Harunian. This guy's a serious rug dealer, like in Beverly Hills. Because my dad had always had car washes and pizzerias. So he had a car wash on, on Swall in Wilshire. And it was like Caddy Corner across the street from where they shot Scarface, Lopez Motors. That's Beverly okay. Hills, Mercedes Benz. It still tears this thing. It looks the same. So <laughs> this guy Harunian comes in and goes, hey, Phil, um, you know, my daughter, she just got married. And she married this Belgian guy, and um, he's kind of crazy. And they got to marry each other for his, so he can get his passport. But he, like, hits her and this and that. My dad's like, yeah, I mean, I'm busy, man. Well, what do you want? You know. Now, this is one of his gambling buddies. And this guy's super wealthy, so he's like, he, he blows a bunch of money. But my dad's like, what do you want me to do? He's like, I want you to talk to him. I need you to talk to him. My dad's like, you, you know what talk to people means. You're, you know, I mean, really? <laughs> That's what you want. You want me to talk to the guy? He's like, yeah, because I, I, I've kind of told him that you're in the movie business and you know all these people and you can put him with the right people and this and that. My dad's like, look, yeah, okay, send him over. I'll talk to him. Um, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get weird. You know, I mean, what's going on? Please try to help it because my daughter is so upset and this and that. So this guy shows up. My mm. dad tells me this. Now, I wasn't there for this, but I was there later in the day because this is when it gets interesting. Um, the guy comes in and says, yes, this and that, blah, blah, blah. My dad's like, look, 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 man. What the f*** is the matter with you? 
Why are you beating on the guy, the, the guy's daughter? You know, this is a good friend of mine. You know who I am, right? I know exactly who you are. Yes, sir. Listen, that. Listen, I'm not beating on her. Look, I'm a martial artist. I'm a world champion. And the girl is a martial artist. We start drinking wine. She does. It gets crazy and wants to practice. Then she starts kicking me and hitting me. And I'm defending myself, and it's kind of crazy. And she's, like, insatiable. And it's like I'm in pain all the time. I was like, okay, man, I don't need to know all <laughs> what. What are you talking about? But look, the woman, I don't have to defend myself. Can you help me? My dad's like, help you? What do you mean help you? Look, I just need some work. I'll do whatever. And then he starts to do these things. He shows my dad his tricks, right? So long story short, the guy ends up at my house. So my dad says, Phil, come downstairs. You got to see this. So I come down there. So here's this dude standing there, jacked out of his mind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, but a really nice, the nicest guy in the whole fucking world, right? My dad goes, show him those tricks again. So this dude in front of me does a split on two chairs, right? Gets off of that like it's nothing. Goes in front of me, lifts his leg up, puts it next to his ear, the other leg, right? It's Jean-Claude Van Damme, right? Before he's, anyone even knows who he is. Right. So my dad just goes, yeah, I like this guy. This is a great guy. My dad, you know, my dad's like, yeah, look, man, I'll handle this with you. You know, move out with the girl. Move in the back of my house here because I have a place here. We have a guest house. You can stay here and you can drive for me. You can be my driver. You can run errands and do stuff. And I'll break you off money. And if you do right, I'll put you with the right people. People see you with me. You can do sure. Sure, sure. But I have my friend Mohammed. Now, Mohammed, if, any, if anybody out there seen seen Kickboxer, Tung Po, that's Mohammed. Right? Oh, okay. So they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So he, they're living in the back. And Jean-Claude had a white GTI rabbit, right? And every time he'd come around, after some time, he lived there for, that was like six to eight months he lived in the back. Then he got his own apartment, but he was still working with my dad. Basically, what he would do is he'd drive my dad around on Friday nights because my dad would get to go out there and party and just start to, you know, networking. And he'd drive my dad around. He lived in the back, and my dad needed errands. He'd do them. And um, always training, always doing martial arts stuff. He'd come back, and he'd have like a swollen lip or had a big knot on his head. And all I can tell you, this guy was the nicest guy in the world, man. He was super cool. Now a young guy. And I'm so like, wow, martial artist and all this stuff. And it's, it, it was amazing. And it's drunk by down. So we don't really, I don't, he's not that guy then. So basically it turns out we moved to a giant home. He ends up getting his own apartment. He's still doing stuff with my dad. Some other weird shit happens that, that'll, I mean, we might get into it in the book. We might not. I'm going to run over by you because it's kind of slanderous for some other people involved in Hollywood that I really okay. don't want to get into. Because they're still very relevant, relevant, and I think it could just, you know, put some kibosh on everything we're trying to do. But um, so basically, we end up moving to Italy. So my father and I were sitting there. We're in Italy. We left under weird circumstances that I found out later. Um, we're sitting watching TV, and what comes on TV? An advertisement for blood sport. Boom, Jean-Claude Van Damme. My dad looks at me. So subsequently to this, my dad knew he was going to be somebody, knew the guy, Charlie Meehan, or whatever his name is, from Golan Globus, gives a, gets a contract. My dad ends up getting some money out of it. I mean, I, I, I've heard from 250 to 500 for it because they knew this guy was going to be somebody. And that's when Chuck Norris was killing it with missing in action and all that. And that company gotcha. went from nothing to, like, making who knows you know, it's it's just insane money for these these, these B movies, and so right. we next thing you know, there's Uncle Van Damme. Now he's on TV, and he becomes famous. And that guy was my dad's driver, and he would like take me to school and hang out with me. Cool. And that's awesome. It's just well, those kind of things that it's, it's amazing, you know. I even don't believe it sometimes, and I never forget it when I see him. I'm like, Dad, look, it's Uncle. It's Uncle on TV. He's like, oh shit! Wow, no, he said that's a movie. And it became, everyone knows what that is, Bloodsport. That, that was the 
pinnacle of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I could tell you that's probably going to be in the book because that's fun. But um, yeah, that, that was awesome. I'm thinking. But that's those are two. a bunch more. Yeah. And yeah. um, but those were two that just came on the top of my head. And then there's all, all right. kinds of other stuff I got pulled off working with well, governments for casinos we could, and. Yeah. We could we could get back into that, but I'm going to say next time we talk publicly on the podcast, mm-hmm. we should go back, mm-hmm. focus on you a little bit, tell some tobacco mm-hmm. stories that are going to put some sure. ass in the seats, and so on and Absolutely. so forth. But um, Phil, I think we did our I think we did what we needed to do today. So if you feel sure. good about it, I think I feel uh, good about it. I hope I didn't talk too fast. I'm just you know. I, I'm sorry out there. I get I get excited, guys and and gals. I and personally like it. I personally <laughs> like it, and I'm not the only one. I have gotten a couple of people say how fast you speak, but it's not really a complaint. I think you're just a fast talker, and people are realizing that, and, it, yeah. and they feel the need to share it with me as if I don't know. You know. Right. So, so gotcha, no, it's, everybody. I'm just humbled that somebody that people actually listen to these stories. But as we said, I've just I've met lots of people in my life and talked to different people and not even the experiences, just relating experiences to people I've had. And everyone's always told me, man, you got to write a book. You got to make a movie about this. You got to do this. And the thing is, is that what we're going to try to relate is that um, the, the how I learned so much how to deal with do all this kind of stuff is because I watched my dad and I took the good from it. I didn't take the bad from it because I'm going to get into the bad stories, how he hustled people and how these these enormous scams he came up with and all these different things that went on and all these people he worked with and in LA and, you know, in Italy. I mean, we haven't even touched it. That's just part of it with David Carradine. There's all these other stuff with this. We'll get into it, but um, yeah, I think that's yeah. enough for the episode this time. Yeah, I'd say you're right. And I'm also going to say, like I always say, thank you, Phil, for doing all this. And thank for you for listening. So I really hope this brings happiness and a smile to people's faces more than anything. You know, it's entertainment, and people need entertainment now probably more yeah. than ever. So I yeah, think so. I hope we filled a little bit of something over there for somebody. But and it's part of a bigger it's it's part of a bigger thing and a bigger project. And I'm just glad people are following along with it. So thank you all, gentle persons, for listening at home again, Phil. Thank you, and yes, I'm sir. gonna. I'm going to let you go. You have a great night, brother. And everybody out there, have a great night. Be blessed and debonair always. Find, you know, find a good cigar to smoke. Enjoy yourselves. Watch a good movie and just uh, take some adventures. I know you can't do it right now, but plan some. You know what I mean? You owe it to yourself. There you go. There you go. All right? All right. You got it. Have a great night. All right, brother. Bye-bye.